Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's getting warmer and swimming is something people do more often, especially in the summer. But it's complicated this year because we're still in a public health crisis. Social distancing is harder to do in cities because people live closer together. And if residents live in an apartment, it doesn't mean they have air conditioning. So what will children in cities do this summer when social distancing must still be practiced and cooling off in a splash park or local pool aren't options? Coming up, we talk with Kevin Borup, Interim Director of the Injury Prevention Center at Connecticut Children's Medical Center, and Harold Sparrow, President and CEO of Greater Hartford YMCA. First, in 2017, USA Swimming Foundation found more than 6 out of 10 African-American children can't swim. Nearly half of Hispanic or Latino kids don't know how to swim either. How does the history of segregation in the U.S. contribute to disparities in swimming? Here's a conversation where we live had with historian Jeff Wiltsey, who wrote the book Contested Waters, A Social History of Swimming Pools in America. Jeff, welcome to where we live. Thanks for having me. I mentioned uh, swimming is uh, largely seen as a summer activity. At the same time, there are many Americans who don't know how to swim or have uh, not very good swimming skills. Uh, the CDC, the American uh, Academy of Pediatrics, also uh, says drowning is the second leading cause of death among children. And we're also seeing statistics that I mentioned that this uh, disparity and lack of swimming disp- disproportionately affects children of color. In your research, why is that? Walk us through the numbers that we see today, and then we'll learn a little bit about the history. Sure. In general, um, black children, or excuse me, in general, black Americans are half as likely to know how to swim as white Americans, and black children are about three times more likely to drown than white children. And so the question becomes, why is that? I mean, this is a significant disparity in both swimming and drowning rates across this social line. And studies have oftentimes focused on kind of contemporary social and cultural explanations, such as fear of water, parents not swimming, um, perceptions that swimming is a white sport. And so in my research, what I've done is ask the question, well, what accounts for this? I mean, what accounts for the fact that um, that, that, that African-American adults are less likely to swim than, than white adults. What accounts for the perception that swimming is a white sport um, or white activity? What accounts for the greater levels of fear generally of water among African-Americans and among white Americans? And to my mind, the primary explanation for this is what's happened in the past and that it's past discrimination in access to swimming pools, swim lessons, and swim teams such that um, you know, large numbers, a widespread part of, of white Americans sort of learned to swim historically during the 20th century, and parents have then passed that on to their children, whereas 
because of restricted access to swimming pools and swim lessons, um, that swimming never became as, as broadly common or popular um, among African Americans, and thus it hasn't been passed down generationally and generationally as, as, as widespread as it has among whites. Now, Jeff, uh, in your book, you you look at uh, the history again. Uh, you mentioned the uh, 20th century. Uh, talk about how swimming, uh, how it first became seen as this national pastime and when uh, you saw the surge of, of uh, swimming pools being built. Yeah, it, it's worth starting out with understanding that, that, that research has shown that during the 19th century and the very early 20th century, um, that, that people of African ancestry throughout the Americas were, were more accomplished swimmers than people of European ancestry. And so that, that people of European ancestry becoming more accomplished swimmers is a relatively recent phenomenon. And it's really something that developed during the 20th century as a consequence of the building of swimming pools and access to those swimming pools. Prior to the 1920s, there weren't that many swimming pools in the United States, and swimming was not a a broadly popular or common activity. But then during the 1920s and 1930s, cities throughout the country built literally thousands of swimming pools. And many of these swimming pools were large leisure resort pools that that, that many of them were larger than football fields. We've kind of lost track of of these grand leisure resort pools today because so many of them have been closed down. But there were thousands of pools during the 1920s and 1930s, and they were generally open to whites. But because of racial discrimination, segregation, in some cases outright exclusion, black Americans had far more restricted access to these public pools. Mm -hmm. And so many, many fewer as a percentage black Americans sort of learned to swim and swimming didn't become as common a part of of the recreational culture during this period when it surged in popularities among white Americans. And then the same pattern was repeated itself again during the 1950s and 1960s. There were literally tens of thousands of private club pools that were developed out in suburbs around the United States. And if the earlier public pools were were restricted to black Americans, the the tens of thousands of private club pools developed during the post-World War II period were almost entirely off limits to black Americans. And so once again, white Americans, in this case, mostly middle-class Americans, had easy access to appealing swimming pools where they would go day after day during the summer. They would join swim teams, um, whereas black Americans did not have access to these pools where swimming became, again, broadly popularized. Uh, When you talk about uh, the swimming pools uh, being built in in many cities uh, starting in the 20s, where did that interest come from? And in the beginning, did you see these pools uh, separated by gender uh, and before it became an issue among uh, racial lines? Yeah, a primary impetus for the pool building during the 1920s and 1930s was to promote a, a community life that, that public officials, when you go back and read their intentions and thinking about building these giant resort pools, that they wanted these pools to promote um, a vibrant community life 
And they also had a very family focus in mind where they wanted these pools to be accessible to families so mother, father, children could all go to the pool together. And so what that necessitated was gender integration. And so prior to the 1920s, what pools there were, and there weren't a lot of pools, but what pools there were, were strictly segregated along gender lines because of the intimacy involved in their use. And so males and females would either use separate pools or they would use the same pool but at different times. But during the 1920s, as city officials wanted to promote um, a vibrant community life, wanted to promote family sociability, they then gender integrated the pools so families could go together and swim together. And, And that's the point at which, at least in the north and also in border state cities like St. Louis, Um, in Washington, D.C., and Baltimore, that they imposed racial segregation. And so prior to gender integration, blacks and whites swam together. I mean, in my research in New York, in Boston, Pittsburgh, Chicago, lots and lots of cities, I found that, that prior to gender integration, blacks and whites swam together. But then once cities allowed males and females to swim together, that's when white swimmers and public officials within those cities um, sort of segregated pools along racial lines, um, in large part because they didn't want black men interacting with white women at such intimate spaces. Jeff Wiltsey is author of Contested Waters, A Social History of Swimming Pools in America, joining us today from Montana Public Radio. As we talk about uh, swimming disparities uh, that exist in our country today, we're looking at the history of of where some of those disparities uh, have come from, and and one being uh, how uh, swimming pools uh, were segregated and they weren't accessible uh, to black Americans uh, in in the 20th century. Uh, You know, in in the South, we know under Jim Crow, you know, official segregation was law of the land. But I want you to talk a little bit about some of the anecdotes uh, and and incidents that you uncovered in your research in places like Pittsburgh, where you saw uh, violent encounters at pools when uh, blacks wanted to swim at the same place where white Pittsburghers wanted to swim. Yeah, ironically, or, or perhaps paradoxically, it was in more northern cities where um, racial segregation was not official city or or state policy, that violence occurred. And so Pennsylvania actually had a civil rights law that prohibited racial discrimination and access to public facilities. And so Pittsburgh as a city couldn't really impose an official policy of racial segregation. And yet in 1931, when it opened a gigantic outdoor pool in Highland Park, this was the first pool that was gender integrated. And so previously, there's good evidence from the Pittsburgh Courier, the African-American newspaper in Pittsburgh, that blacks and whites swam together at the gender segregated pools with little problem. Um, But then in 1931, Pittsburgh opens a giant outdoor pool and allows males and females to use it together, but they could not impose an official policy of racial segregation. And so they effectively left it to white swimmers who would literally attack any black swimmers that came to use the pool. And typically this was young um, African-American men, um, teenagers, 15, 16, 17 years old, who would come to this pool, this giant pool. There'd be hundreds, in some cases, thousands of white swimmers there who would intimidate them. But if they persisted and entered the pool, they would be punched and dunked under the water and kicked. Um, and that this was the means, intimidation and violence, that was used to impose de facto segregation at these pools. 
Eventually, uh, courts ruled that you couldn't uh, segregate and keep people away from using these pools if they weren't white. And so then what did we see happen in the the 50s and 60s, Jeff? Racial desegregation of public pools began in the late 1940s. Um, and then really continued to the 1960s. And so it began in some northern cities in the late 1940s. And then by the mid-1950s, most pools, most public pools in the north had been racially desegregated. And then that shifts to the south during the early 1960s. Um, and, And the response was in the south, very blatant, that in, in, in the southern United States, cities just closed pools, um, closed all their public pools rather than allow mixed race use. And so in many southern cities, um, in many areas of the south, there were literally no public pools after racial desegregation because cities just simply closed them down. In, in the north, the response was, was more nuanced that typically what happened in the North is when a pool that had previously been um, for whites only became racially desegregated and black swimmers started to use it, that white swimmers in mass abandon it. Mm-hmm. I found in case after case after case that, that white attendance at a pool that had become racially desegregated would drop by 90 or 95 percent when, when, when black swimmers started using it. And so overall usage of many of these pools, especially these large resort pools that I talked about previously, that they started to attract relatively few swimmers. And so cities stop investing money in them and maintaining them. And so over time, very quickly actually, over the course in many cases of just a few years, the pools became dilapidated, they, they required significant maintenance, and cities simply refused to pay the costs of maintaining them or rebuilding them, and so ended up closing them down. And so what happens during the 1960s and 70s in particular is a mass wave of pool closings, public pool closings, which again, so, so African Americans and other people of color get access to pools in the wake of desegregation, but on the heels then of that access, many of these pools get shut down, which again reinforces their restricted access as whites are able generally mm-hmm. to swim at private pools. So when you see uh, these pools closing, a lack of access to uh, black Americans uh, to even be at a pool or learn how to swim. So this then led into this uh, lack of culture of of swimming where you had generations who never learned to swim. So it wasn't something that they then uh, tried uh, to get their children to learn. Exactly. That's how I understand it. I mean, that's how I I, I, I explain it. And to me, the important idea is that that. I think for many people, they think that what happened in the past is in the past, and it doesn't directly influence um, what's happening today. And, and that's certainly not the case here, that, that the past discrimination continues to shape swimming and drowning rates today, precisely because swimming is essentially a, a cultural practice or it's a cultural habit. And you can think about it in generational terms, that if you grow up going to a pool and it's an important part of your upbringing, you then tend to pass that along or create those same opportunities for your children. And then your children do it for their children. And so these cultural practices like swimming, either competitive swimming or recreational swimming, get passed on generationally, generationally. Well, if you as a child did not swim, 
and instead you grew up more generally with a fear of water and a sense that swimming pools were not a place where you belonged, then you obviously didn't take your children to the swimming pool. And then that, that fear of water or that sense of not belonging at a pool gets passed down from generationally to generationally. And that's what we find among many black families. Mm. Uh, this is where we live. Again, today we're looking at a swimming culture and disparities where there are minority children uh, who don't know how to swim uh, compared to, uh, to uh, white children. Uh, when we're talking about um, how this uh, uh, leads to some outcomes and stories we're seeing today, Jeff, there was that highly publicized case in, in Louisiana back in 2010 uh, known as the Red River Tragedy. You've also written about this. Uh, tell our listeners briefly what happened there. Yeah, it's a, it's a tragic story that highlights the disparities that we're talking about, which is one young African-American man, I mean, a, a teenager, waded out into the, the Rouge River in Louisiana and, and essentially stepped off a ledge where he went into deep water that was over his head, and he couldn't swim. And so he started flailing about and saying, help me, help me, help me. And he was there with a, a larger family party. And several of his cousins sort of rushed out just instinctively to try to save them. And they went off this ledge as well into deep water, and none of them could swim. And the adults were standing along the the, the shoreline watching their children drown, but they couldn't do anything to help because they couldn't swim either. And, and, and finally, um, someone from afar heard the screaming, came and ran, jumped into the water and pulled one of the children out. And it was the original young man who, had, who, had, who, had, who, had, who, had, who was the original one to start drowning. But then all of his or the cousins of his that went in to save him drowned. And I can't remember the exact number, but I think it was six or seven um, young African-Americans drowned because no one within this larger family knew how to swim. Uh, today, when we look at uh, neighborhoods and cities, there aren't a lot of community pools uh, anymore. And what, after the recession, Jeff, have we seen even municipalities taking an interest in trying to spend the money to have this uh, pool in uh, in their neighborhoods, so to increase access for all children, not just the the children who who have families that can afford swim lessons or a, a membership to a private club. My my sense, and this is mostly anecdotal, is that there has been a resurgence of funding for public water recreation um, over maybe the last 10 years or so, so coming out of the, the so-called Great Recession. Now, what's different from the past is that a lot of these facilities are, are water parks where they're not traditional swimming pools, but they are... Um, like lily pads and sprays, and you know, you'd maybe wade out to your waist or to your knees. And so they're providing a nice summertime recreation, escape from the heat, but they're not serving the same social or life-saving purpose as as swimming pools used to, because these really these these a lot of these facilities don't actually involve much swimming. Mm. And then going forward, uh, Jeff, we were talking about the history of discrimination and segregation in this country, uh, you know, being one of the consequences of the disparities we see today and, and the ability uh, for Ameri- well, some Americans to be able to swim. But when we look at uh, the uh, economic barriers and uh, the socioeconomic factors that may lead people to not be able to have access, is that a bigger issue today? I think it is, continues to be a big issue, but it's now splitting 
along a different social line, which is now um, access to swimming pools is, is, is less sort of restricted along strictly racial lines. And it's more now restricted along class lines, such that middle and upper class Americans of, 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 of whatever racial identity have easier access to swimming pools, swim lessons, and swim teams than do poor and working class Americans. And that's a consequence of the general trend towards privatization. Now, I just mentioned that over the last 10 years, there's been something of a resurgence of funding of public water recreation. But for a long period of time, pools were shut down, relatively new public pools were opened, um, and that instead, the new pools that were opened were private pools. And so now, within the United States, we have large numbers of private pools that if you have the money, you can easily access them, where we still have a relative dearth of public pools. And so if you need to access public recreation, you're, you're, you're far less likely to be able to access a pool than if you can uh, afford to access a private pool. And so kind of casting forward in time, 15, 20 years from now, I think what we're going to find is that the swimming and drowning disparities that exist in the United States will start to, to, to show more clearly along class lines than along racial lines. But to the extent to which people of color are overrepresented among the poor and working classes in America, mm -hmm. we'll still see a racial uh, dynamic to it. Jeff Wildsey is professor of history at University of Montana, author of Contested Waters, A Social History of Swimming Pools in America. Uh, Jeff joined us today uh, from the studios of Montana Public Radio. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Coming up, how might pool closures and canceled swim lessons because of the pandemic impact drowning risks this summer? Join the conversation, where we live, coming up after this break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Summer's coming, but it won't feel like seasons past. When it's hot, kids want to head to a splash pad or water park or pool. But access to swimming may be harder this summer because of the pandemic. Social distancing is still needed, but where will Connecticut youth go, especially in cities, to get a break from the heat? And what will this mean for African-American and Hispanic children who are less likely to know how to swim than their white peers? Joining us now via Zoom are our two guests. Uh, Kevin Borup is Interim Director of the Injury Prevention Center at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. He's also a member of the Commission on Women, Children, and Seniors Water Safety Awareness. This is a task force uh, before the Connecticut General Assembly. Uh, Kevin, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Harold Sparrow. He's president and CEO of the YMCA of Greater Hartford. Harold, welcome to where we live. Thank you for having me. You can also join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Harold, I wanted to start with you. You know, We just heard this interesting conversation from this historian, Jeff Wiltsey, giving us some of the history of access to swimming pools in our country, how it's impacted rates of swimming knowledge today. When you think about the families who use the, the Y and its programming, do, does what you, what you heard resonate with what you hear from these families? Well, uh, yes, I thought that Jeff was uh, very much spot on. Um, I would say that access to swimming, to pools, uh, for African-Americans and people of color is really an intergenerational curse. 
we see it as it came out of the segregated Jim Crow South, and the statistics back that up. I believe that the University of um, Nevada uh, did a study that said that 60% of African-American and 45% of Hispanic children cannot swim compared to 40% of Caucasian children. So at the YMCA, we actually invented swim lessons. Uh, last year, we had in 2019 over 1,800 uh, young people uh, take aquatics programming uh, through our YMCAs. When you mentioned the YMCA invented swim lessons, so tell me a little bit about that, how the YMCA made it a, a part of their mission uh, to make sure that kids and communities across this country can swim. Sure. So um, when Jeff talked about the building of pools across the country uh, back in the 1920s, the YMCA was a part of that movement and built pools. And a matter of fact, in the segregated South, a million-dollar grant from uh, Roebuck, from Sears and Roebuck, uh, built what we call the Roebuck YMCAs. And it was at those pools where uh, African-American children learned how to swim. But the first swim lessons were actually invented by the YMCA around 1910 and 1915, where we had a uh, sequence and escalated uh, structure about how to teach young people to swim. So how to breathe, how to float, how to stroke. And then as you progressed, you went up in class levels. Mm. When you're talking with families of the kids, again, that, that use the YMCA in Greater Hartford, are these families where, as we talk about this multi-generational issue where the kids may be learning to swim, but what about their parents or their grandparents? Do they know how? So it's, it's interesting that you ask that. Uh, we received a grant in 2015 from the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving specifically to teach children of color how to swim in Hartford and East Hartford. And the parents wanted their young people to swim, but they as well had a fear of the water. So what we did was we incorporated water safety lessons to our parents and families uh, so that they would learn how to, one, be safe around the water, and two, how to help somebody if they accidentally fell in. From that, some parents did uh, uh, join up and sign up for swim classes. And how did that go? Because I know uh, adults, we tend to be a little fearful of trying new things or maybe thinking, oh, it's too late for me. But tell, tell me about the experience these parents had. I think uh, it went well for the kids. Uh, we actually served over 1,800 children um, with the parents. Um, when they came, they came as a family. And so I would say that they learned to uh, uh, they learned the basics of swimming, uh, how to breathe and float. Some progressed to be competent swimmers. But most of them uh, gained a comfortability around the water that they previous didn't that they previously did not have. And to us, education is key. It's really how to keep yourself safe, how to keep your children safe, and how to be thoughtful around the water so that um, these drownings can be prevented because it is a preventable death. And we're going to talk more about that in just a little bit. I wanted to bring our other guest into the conversation again, Kevin Borbs, with us on Zoom as well, Interim Director of the Injury Prevention Center at Connecticut Children's. Uh, Kevin, when we look at these statistics, uh, the ones that we heard uh, Jeff Wiltsey share, the ones Harold just shared, it's really startling that African-American children are significantly more likely to drown than their white peers. I'm looking at a, a CDC study back in 2014. They looked over a, a decade of, of data and found that kids between the ages of 5 and 19, uh, black children were five times more likely to drown than their white peers. Uh, what does it look like here in Connecticut? Well, that's right. And, and thanks again for having me on. I think the, the work that the Y is doing, the Herald's group is doing, is, is critical. 
we know from the data that if your if your parents don't swim, your your chances of learning to swim are incredibly low. So that work is crucial. Here in Connecticut, uh, we really reflect uh, what's in the national data. And uh, nearly 65% of children who drown in Connecticut are black or Hispanic. And that is certainly disproportionate to the, to the population. Six out of 10 Connecticut children who drowned uh, between the years 2011 and 2018 were black or Hispanic. That's what you just mentioned. That's correct. And again, that is really startling. So when we think about the age range, who are the kids that are most at risk, Kevin? Well, we really have, uh, and this goes across the spectrum, two groups of kids who are most at risk. We have the children who are one to four years old, uh, who that really is a leading cause of unintentional injury death in the United States. And then we have that older group of kids, 13 to 17, who are greatly at risk, and especially males. Mm. What about uh, other areas of risk? I was thinking about, you know, when we think about remote learning and how so many children are now home with their families, uh, children with developmental disabilities or autism that are home and and their parents are trying to balance so many things, they're not getting that specialized, uh, again, uh, care and education in schools. And so what about kids with these uh, disabilities? Are they more at risk for drowning as well? Yeah, that bears out in, in what we see in the data and that children with autism are at increased risk of drowning and especially those who are younger than 15 years of age. And when you look at the drowning deaths, wandering is the main risk and it accounts for about 74% of those drowning incidents. Uh, so parents with children with autism can take uh, certain precautions and overall, These are the precautions any parent can take with children, which are, uh, you know, using barriers, using supervision, uh, engaging in swim lessons. And when children are near the water, having uh, making sure they wear life jackets if they're non-swimmers or young swimmers. And when it comes to children with autism, uh, you know, keeping uh, supervision on young children, making sure if they wander that you immediately check pools or other bodies of water. Uh, those can be key to keeping everyone safe. Hmm. Harold Sparrow, are these uh, similar guidelines uh, or advice that uh, you and your staff give to families and children who attend uh, uh, the Y? Yes, absolutely. And to um uh, to the previous point, uh, there's a website called Swim Angelfish, which um, focuses and specializes in safety tips for special needs populations. So if your audience would like to go to that website and they have a special needs child uh, within their family group and or friends, that would be a very uh, good place to start. For us, it's really around education. Uh, I think, uh, again, that everyone should have a properly fitted uh, Coast Guard approved life jacket. I think that the most important piece is that around water, children should be supervised at all times because often there are accidental drownings that happen. Um, and the best way to do that is to, to have a, uh, guidelines in your family to say, if you want to go into the water, you have to ask permission from an adult first, and then an adult will accompany you to the water's edge. Um, and the other important part that we we should focus on is, you know, how do you stay safe? You may not be, uh, you may not know how to swim, but water safety is important too. So if you accidentally 
fall in and you can't swim? Can you float on your back? Can you bounce off the bottom until you get to shore? Um, and I think people, um, it's crucial that they do take water safety tests and have conversations with their kids in the beginning of the summer about water safety, swimming, and lack of access to the pools. Because to the point about teenagers, oftentimes young men will, um, uh, what's the word, trespass and swim in the mm. public pool um, uh, in, in Connecticut, but also across the country. And these risky behaviors can uh, lead to unnecessary harm uh, for the future. You're hearing Harold Sparrow here on Where We Live. He's president and CEO of the YMCA of Greater Hartford. Also with us on Zoom, Kevin Borup, interim director of the Injury Prevention Center at Connecticut Children's. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you have a question about uh, water safety this summer, here's the number, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, something that you said, Harold, I wanted to, to go back to that, this issue of accidental drownings, uh, uh, teenagers who may uh, trespass in this risky behavior, especially this summer when we're hearing that uh, there are state inland parks where swimming uh, is not permitted, uh, shoreline state parks where right now lifeguards are not on duty because they don't have a proper training and PPE yet. Um, how uh, how worrisome is this for you, uh, Kevin Borup, uh, because we're in such a, a strange time with the pandemic and social distancing must continue? Uh, Lucy, I think it's it's very concerning. Adolescents, uh, fifteen and older, uh, natural for in natural bodies of water, they they actually account for three quarter of the of the drowning incidents. Uh, and so, uh, the safest place for adolescents is in a place with uh, lifeguards. Uh, young people often overestimate their skills. Uh, they often underestimate the risk they're getting into. And we have that issue with brain development and young people engaging in high-risk impulsive behaviors because their prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed to their mid-20s. Mm. And then I think the, the final piece, when, they're, when young people aren't supervised, uh, especially when it comes to drowning incidents, alcohol and substance abuse uh, plays a large role in these, in these drowning, these preventable uh, drowning incidents. Mm. Harold Sparrow, what does Y programming look like uh, this summer, including access to pools, uh, because social distancing must still be here too? So um, you know, we will not have access to pools this summer currently uh, under the governor's guidelines. What we will do is focus on uh, water safety uh, for our kids that come to our day camps. And on the hot days, uh, we will probably put some kind of um, safe ways to cool them off. And by that, I mean sprinklers, slip and slides, uh, maybe little kiddie pools that will be supervised by our staff and by our lifeguards. Mm. That's uh, you know upsetting to hear, I'm sure, for a lot of people who go to the Y or just trying to find access uh, to swimming uh, this summer. Uh, do you anticipate, uh, Harold Sparrow, and then I'll go back to Kevin, but do you anticipate that these guidelines will change maybe midsummer as Connecticut gets into phase two and three? What are you hearing? Well, uh, I have to say that the governor's been consistent with his message about uh, pools and uh, resident camps. Uh, however, here at the Y, we are anticipating that it could change. And there have been um, decisions or policies put forth that have uh, been reversed. So we are training our staff in terms of water safety. We are, at this point right now, have our, are hiring our lifeguards 
and we will and and we will be ready if it changes to provide uh, safe, fun, uh, and uh, great experiences for young people as they come to our YMCA's. And, and I would say, if and when it does change, because it will, uh, that people should contact their local YMCA's one to sign up for swim lessons. Mm-hmm. So swim lessons will still continue, but what will change about the swim lessons that you may have provided uh, before this pandemic and now, uh, Harold Sparrow? I, I think the basic functional learning of swim lessons will remain the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and again, for our YMCA's, when we start swim lessons, we really focus on water safety. Because uh, to, um, to Kevin's point, uh, not all people understand the danger that water poses. So we educate the parents, we educate the families, and then we teach our young people how to swim within the pools uh, and at, at, our, at our resident camps and at the lakes which our, our camps are located on. You mentioned uh, resident camps. Right now, those are closed by executive order. And I don't know if the governor is going to reconsider. It's been quoted in the Hearst, Connecticut media that he's thinking about, again, uh, this uh, after hearing from a lot of resident camps and families. But in terms of even day camps and day programming that the YMCA provides, uh, Harold, how will that change? Because capacity has to be much uh, less, uh, 50% because of, of social distancing. Sure. So last year, we had over 1,500 children within our summer day camps on a daily basis. This year, we will serve fewer children. But what we have put in place are PPE guidelines and uh, uh, summer safety uh, uh, documents. And we have partnered with Trinity Health of New England and the chief epidemiologist, uh, Dr. Daniel Abraham, to help us develop these docs. So what does that look like? For a day camp, it would mean if you have a child that you would drop him or her off at the uh, front uh, of the camp entrance. There will be a staff person with PPE gear on uh, with a thermal thermometer that will check his his uh, temperature. We will do three temperature checks a day. Uh, we will do social distancing. So when your child comes to camp, uh, he or she will be put into a cohort of 10 young people, and that will pretty much be the family. They will be a little team that will go from activity to activity over the course of the day. So it could start with arts and crafts. It could then go to um, uh, um, archery. It, it could then go to basketball. And we will close, as, as we transition, we're setting aside time to clean our facilities uh, with uh, germicides that kill the um, coronavirus. Mm. We are doing everything possible to make sure that not only uh, you know our kids and families are safe, but our staff is safe as well. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to thank uh, the Trinity Hospital, who will be conducting a training and webinars for all of our staff that will work with us to some about our protocols and procedures around coronavirus and how to keep each other safe uh, as, as we move through this pandemic. Mm. Again, you can join our conversation here on Where We Live. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. As we talk about access to swimming and because of the pandemic, uh, some opportunities uh, that won't be, there won't be as many opportunities uh, for swim lessons or uh, day camps as in previous summers. I wanted to go back to Kevin Borup, again, Interim Director of the Injury Prevention Center at Connecticut Children's. Kevin, what kind of conversations are you having at Connecticut Children's uh, with not only medical staff, but 
what uh, policy leaders in our state in terms of access again to programs to keep children safe, thinking about uh, what we've just talked about um, in terms of age range and uh, again, risk to, of drownings. Uh, if kids don't have places to go, you know, what's and, then, and things are closed that can lead to trespassing. I'm just curious, uh, you know, what, how, you, how you've been talking about that at Children's. Yeah, thank you, Lucy. It's certainly a challenging issue with COVID-19. A lot of our external uh, outreach programs have uh, come to a stop with the social distancing guidelines. We are, however, having conversations now ramping up our summer safety education. And uh, we'll be kicking off that summer safety education in June. And that addresses a whole range of issues uh, from uh, road safety uh, to fireworks to the issue of water safety that we're talking about right now. I think it's important for everyone to note that, um, you know, summer is the drowning season with over 80% of the deaths occurring from May to August. And about half of those deaths occur Friday to Sunday or on a holiday weekend. And that, that really gives us a lot of pause as we look to some photos we've or videos we've seen from other states with people uh, massing against social uh, distancing guidelines in pools and, and natural bodies of water. And I think we have to be uh, very wary of that, not only due to the impact of COVID-19, but the safety of that. If people begin gathering in natural bodies of water that because of COVID-19 are closed or are unguarded, um, and, and that is concerning. So we will be uh, reaching out to our partners in the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, to reach the pediatricians who have a great reach in this state, as well as to our partners in Safe Kids Connecticut and some of the other coalitions that we're part of to get that message out, including our friends at the Y who do a, a fantastic job mm -hmm. in providing education on this issue. Before we head to break, you mentioned pediatricians across the state that can reach into communities. Uh, so many families may have put off even going into the doctor's office for regular checkups because, again, we're in this pandemic. So does that make it challenging for doctors to have conversations with their families? Right. When you speak with pediatricians, I mean, a lot of the conversations uh, are, are limited. They're driven by what families want to talk about many times, but with especially young children and older children, uh, we'll work with the academy to provide some guidance to talk about water safety issues with parents. Um, I think it's important that everyone understand that while swimming lessons are incredibly important, uh, there need to be uh, other strategies put in place and barriers. If you have a pool in your, uh, at your home, a four-sided fence is key to keeping everyone safe. Uh, when we talk about, you know, the very young children, 69% uh, of those children under five who died by drowning were not expected to be at, in, or near the pool. And so it's very important that barriers, physical barriers are in place uh, to protect children, that they again have those swim lessons and, and supervision is, is key. And that's what we'll be emphasizing as we roll into June and July is supervision by responsible adults. 
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. My guest today, Kevin Borup, Interim Director of the Injury Prevention Center at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Also, Harold Sparrow, President and CEO of the YMCA of Greater Hartford. We're going to continue our conversation after this short break. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, Connecticut has opened up slowly, but do you still have questions about safety and what the next few months will look like? On the next Where We Live, Governor Ned Lamont calls in to answer our questions and yours. We'll also hear from Rodney Butler, chairman of the Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation, about reopening Foxwoods Resort Casino. That's all coming up on Monday. Now, today we're talking about making sure Connecticut children are safe this summer when recreational opportunities like swimming won't be as accessible as in past summers because of social distancing in this pandemic. My guest today, Kevin Borup, Interim Director of the Injury Prevention Center at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Also, Harold Sparrow, President and CEO of the YMCA of Greater Hartford. If you have a question, you can join us too, 888-720-9677. Kathy's calling in. Kathy, go ahead. Um, Hi, my name's Kathy Koenig. I'm a nurse clinician at the Yale Child Study Center. I just wanted to make your listeners aware of a program that happens at Yale University. Unfortunately, it happens only during the academic year, um, but it's called SNUGS, Special Needs Undergraduate Swim. And this is a program of swimming lessons for children with special needs, autism, intellectual disability, any kind of physical or developmental disability. Um, it is taught by undergraduate um, at Yale who are members of the swim and dive team. They have special training to help them understand how to work with children with special needs. Um, Right now, uh, you know, of course, Yale University is only doing online work, so I I know the program isn't in session. I'm not sure what it will look like for for the uh, fall, but I just wanted to make listeners aware. And I'm in the car, so I don't have the contact information with me, but I think the best way to find out about it is to just simply Google special needs undergraduate swim at Yale, and I think you'll find it. Well, perfect, Kathy, and we'll be sure to share that information with listeners on Twitter and Facebook at Where We Live. We thank you for calling in to let us know about that program. We just have a a couple minutes left. Uh, Kevin, uh, quickly, I mentioned that you're part of this task force before the Connecticut General Assembly. I believe there was a bill um, earlier this year where they were considering lawmakers a bill to provide free swimming lessons to all children in Connecticut. What, What happened with that? Well, I, I think the legislative session and uh, COVID and has interrupted a lot of work. And hopefully, as we get into the, the new year, there will be more attention uh, by the commission to look at uh, what policy recommendations can be made uh, to uh, reduce drowning. Uh, you know, the, the commission did uh, a lot of work uh, while it was more active over the last two years in creating an educational tear-off pad for uh, community, uh, for community members, for uh, pediatric offices. They created a, uh, an educational poster to disseminate. And it had a, uh, what I think is a great slogan, which was, um, never leave water alone with a child. Mm. Kind of turning that, uh, turning that supervision piece on its head 
to raise awareness around the fact that don't be distracted around water when there's a child there. Constantly provide that supervision and never leave water alone with mm-hmm. the child. And Harold Sparrow, again, just a couple of minutes left uh, for parents, other listeners who are listening right now, and they want to connect with programs at the Y. Again, you're the president and CEO of the YMCA of Greater Hartford. What's the best place to go for people to learn more about the the Ys around our state? Uh, I think the best place to go is the YMCA of Greater Hartford uh, website. But um, if they just Google um, uh, the local Ys within a community, there are 21 YMCAs in the state of Connecticut. Um, uh, in many of them in small season towns uh, across the, uh, the state. Um, I, I did want to add that the, the 21 Ys wrote a letter to the governor, uh, the YMCA of Connecticut. We have a, an alliance asking to reconsider opening resident camp, and particularly for kids of color uh, who often come from multi-generational families where there are close quarters. And we believe that resident camp will be a safer environment for them because essentially once they enter into the camp, uh, based on um, uh, our, our protocols that are developed by the American Camping Association um, and, and uh, driven by the CDC, they'll be in a 10-person cohort uh, versus uh, being in communities where there's close quarters. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will interact with a number of different people. So I think it's important um, that um, people contact the local YMCAs to find out, one, how they can enroll their children in summer day camp, um, and two, um, it's important that we are thoughtful about uh, how we in, uh, communicate and uh, uh, work and play with each other. And the YMCA's across the state are taking extremely safe precautions to make sure that everyone is safe, protected, and continue to have a great experience. Well, we'll be, we'll be sure to ask the governor on Monday again about this, the status of resident camps. But I want to thank Harold Sparrow again, president and CEO of the YMCA of Greater Hartford. Harold, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Also with us, Kevin Borup, interim director of the Injury Prevention Center at Connecticut Children's Medical Center and a member of the Commission on Women, Children and Seniors Water Safety Awareness Task Force before the General Assembly. Kevin, it was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. And thank you, Lucy. Again, uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff and our tech producer is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about the show. Download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Have a great weekend.